QED. High times in California. Actually, we're kind of at a high elevated point for we this are. podcast. This is the uh, California Politics Podcast for the week ending April 24th. We're uh, in a completely new location. This is not the secret location that Anthony was in. The time. All, all I know is I see Alcatraz. <laughs> I see ships and, yeah, the Golden Gate Bridge. I see the Golden Gate Bridge. So we're in a conference room in San Francisco, high above the beautiful city, gorgeous view. Looking down on everyone. Some, some folks were nice enough to let us uh, in. Anthony, Marisa, and I spoke at a, a conference of municipal investors here on Thursday, and so we're taping the podcast on the road. So there you have it. So... This podcast, High Times, uh, it was a big week in marijuana. Yeah, let's let's be clear. It might be the week ending 424, but it started with 420. It was 420, and that is topic one. We're also going to talk a little bit about um, the changing face of uh, crime victims and rehabilitation versus uh, law and order. This was Crime Victims Week in California. And our third big topic will be, what else? Water. We need like a sound effect for water uh, in some... <laughs> we need the sound effects. That was good. That is Anthony York from the Grizzly Bear Project as the uh, the Foley artist for the podcast. That's right. That's Marisa me. Lagos from KQED, and I am John Myers from KQED. So let's can I be talk the, about can I be the gaffer next. Yes. Okay. Let's talk about pot. Okay. In the politics of pot. So yes, four twenty came in. By the way, I don't know the four twenty thing very well, so like I didn't even get that at the beginning. I don't know if I should disclose that, but. Well, it's like one of those things where everybody has a different theory about how it came to pass. But let's just where it ends is that it has been adopted by the stoner nation as like their day of celebration. It was. And and there was a a great video on plugging KQED News where they went out to Golden Gate Park and you could see like the great big like uh, fog over the ground, Mm -hmm. which wasn't fog. Um, So we were all at work. So was it? What was it? I I got it. (laughs) <laughs> that's another, Moving podcast. On. That's another yeah. podcast. I'm going to have to have some explaining. So let's talk about the politics of, of pot, which came out this week a little bit. We had two ballot measures submitted to the Attorney General for title and summary that would legalize uh, marijuana for the 2016 election. Uh, it was 420. That was fortuitous timing on yeah, one of them. And, and yes, and that's next. Fortuitous, 420 <laughs> And then conjugating Latin verbs. The lieutenant governor of California, Gavin Newsom, held a thinking, talking summit session right at UCLA uh, talking about marijuana. Of course, the lieutenant governor is a proponent of legalizing marijuana, though I want to talk about that in detail a little bit about the way it seemed as though he was trying to lead that discussion. But do we we have any feeling that uh, a legalization initiative is not going to happen? I mean, are there too many signs to say it's going to happen? There's... The question isn't whether it's going to happen. It's how many are going to be on the ballot and whether the folks who want to legalize it can all get together and agree on one initiative. Because I think otherwise what you're going to see is competing initiatives. You know, in some ways akin to some of the behind the scenes fights we saw, I think, with the gay marriage issue in Prop 8, where... I think that there is some momentum to try to legalize it in California. I don't think that it will happen if the advocates on the pro side can't all sit down and agree on one sort of set of expectations. Well, that's the problem right now. You have multiple measures with multiple ways to deal with with what are complicated topics. Yeah. And, and, and the question I think Marisa is asking is whether these proponents, a lot of whom are new to the political process, are savvy enough to keep their egos in check and real, realize the political realities that if there's more than one measure that goes forward, it's going to endanger the chances 
of of all of them. And so and and, you know, and I think we should get know. into the whys of that. I mean, what you have right now is this bizarre structure in California where medical marijuana marijuana has been legal for many years. Uh, the state has not stepped up and really promulgated its own regulations and sort of set expectations. So within the legalization community, you have people that already have a lot of skin in the game, so to speak, who have spent a lot of money on both, you know, growing and cultivating and then on selling it and having that infrastructure so i think there are people within the medical marijuana community that from a financial perspective don't want to see it get legalized um and then you have you know just sort of differing views on what that should look like i think one thing that newsom is trying to do is really get everyone at the table even the opponents in law enforcement and figure out you know what is the best structure for this um i think having someone like him at the head of that effort stands to really benefit these folks in the sense of at least he understands the political realities but again like it's kind of like herding cats but i invoked uh the former mayor of san francisco lieutenant governor a moment ago about this in the conference he had on on um on marijuana legalization at ucla this week anthony and i uh driving down to san francisco today in my uh, trusty prius um we're talking just a little bit about newsom on that issue and it just strikes me as though, you know, Newsom came out very early saying, I support the legalization, but I want to think it through. And, and part of what he has to deal with, too, is the politics for him, the politics for 2018 and running for governor. And do I, am I seen as an advocate of change, but careful change, thought yeah, like out he, change? Because there's a lot at stake for him, the wrong measure, the wrong legalization, um, something that happens like in Colorado or somewhere else, those kinds of things happen in California, they come back to haunt his electoral chances. Well, I mean, to be fair, it's it's a much different both political and logistical, you know, road to hoe than it is in Colorado or some of these smaller states where we've seen this happen. I think that's where Newsom is trying to kind of have it both ways. He's saying, I support this. Look, I'm being out front, sort of akin to the way he was with gay marriage, but I want to do it the right way. And so that leaves him an out. Right. Where if something gets on the ballot or multiple things and he can find these issues in them that he can go, well, I'm not ready to support that. Um, So that's partially what people did with Prop 19, too, though, a few years ago. Right. I mean, there were people who say, hey, this is a good idea, but this measure is the wrong measure. It's the way it's written. Right. Which brings up whether last year's initiative reform is going to impact this. Right. I mean, the legislature will have hearings. Yeah. I think that's this. actually a really good point. That's really yeah. fascinating. So, there, I mean, you start gathering signatures. If people remember, you gather signatures and it triggers legislative hearings and you can amend, you can change the measure in some ways. And so somebody says, you know, I don't really think that way works. OK, let's work on that. This could be a great case for that. Again, though, I think that takes into account this assumption that everybody who's on the pro-legalization side is either in lockstep with one another or has, you know, sort of pure intentions at heart. And I think there are advocates that do who have worked on this, you know, the Drug Policy Alliance who just say, hey, we, you know, their thing is like we want to stop locking people up for these things. And then there are other people with a lot of other different, you know, sort of financial business, other considerations. Um, And again, a law enforcement lobby that does not want to see this there's a bill i mean i think we should talk about the legislation that's happening right now there's i mean a number of things but there is um you know one bill that would really make statewide regulations happen uh we'll see where that goes there's also ones on you know breathalyzers and testing people if they're driving under the influence and i mean there's a lot of different ways to sort of get at this and chip away at any legalization effort and i think we're going to see that come on strong 
I looked at Anthony. He's, he's, he's <laughs> and I looked back at you. I don't <laughs> he's deep in thought over there. But let me let me talk about the Newsom part just for a moment. I mean, does something like this need a, 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 a champion in that way? Does it need a does it need someone? I mean, because that's the danger, right? I mean, the danger is is that that Californians who may be predisposed to do this see the wrong image, the wrong person, the wrong leader, and they dismiss it as the stoner nation, as the this is the something else. I mean, so in some ways, it needs that kind of champion, doesn't it? It needs a a, a leading figure or a coalition. Maybe. Of figures. I mean, maybe it depends how strong and vehement the opposition is. But you know, to Marisa's earlier point that. The issue has changed so much, you know, in, in over, I think you ask, you know, polls have shown that there's, you know, Californians are pretty split on the issue, um, but the politics of legalization and, and where California is as a state, uh, I mean, it's changed a lot. And so I would argue pot is probably a, a hell of a lot more popular than any individual politician at this point. But, but I mean, I, I see what you're saying, like that that the wrong messenger could derail it. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think, I think that's true, too. But I don't know that it needs, you know, someone to take this issue under their wing and really champion it into, into the 2016 election. I'm not sure, A, that that's necessary, and B, if it were necessary, that Gavin Newsom is really the guy you're looking for. I mean, you know, um, you'd want someone like who would, I don't know, if Dianne Feinstein were to endorse it, right? I mean, that w- which she's already come out against it, for the record. But, <laughs> but, but you know, I mean, some of this sort of against type, I think, is, is what you're talking about, right? Yes and no, though. I mean, I would say that I don't think it's going to hurt them. I think it, it does stand to help them. I think having any one person who can speak articulately and sort of not look like, you know, your typical humble stoner type is, is going to be helpful and convincing a lot of people who might be kind of more on the fence. I mean... I think what's interesting about this issue is how, I mean, we talked about this last week, like a lot of political issues, personal experience plays a role, but, you know, this is a generational question. I think that, um, I I think that the sort of younger generations, but even, I mean, look, you, you have to look at the past couple decades and like where things have come and gone. And a lot of the arguments you hear against it now from like law enforcement, um, may not be untrue, but are, are sort of interesting. Oh, this isn't the marijuana you smoked in college, guys. This is stronger. Well, okay. Fair. But, like, is that going to be enough to convince people who may have personal experience with this? You know, I think I think the stronger argument against it are the concerns around kids and, and you know, public safety in terms of driving and those sorts of things. But I do think we've seen a sea change, and I think Newsom can help make it even more mainstream than it already is. And that's what I think is just, you know, really gets us back to where we started, which was that, you know, these measures were, were um, introduced. There are now, I think, four measures uh, to, to legalize marijuana. And the, the one advocacy group has already put a million dollars in a campaign account, not attached to any one particular measure. And so it's not the big picture question you're asking the voters to get on, legalize marijuana, yes or no. It is how you do it, the details. And that, I go back to the 19 campaign, where that one was was killed in part because it was the, this isn't the right way to do it. And that's right. really the political challenge here is picking apart the measure, right? And saying, what about this unintended consequence? That unintended consequence. And how much easier it is to oppose something like this if there are multiple measures and you can sort of sort of show how... You think multiple ones could get on the ballot? I think it's possible. I think there's a lot of people in the industry with a lot of money. And I, again, go back to the fact that I don't think they're as politically savvy as some of the folks who typically 
run these ballot measures. And, um, you know, I, I think I think that's the big fear that, that that could happen or that everything dissolves into a big fight and nothing gets on. Up in smoke is what I was going to say, but you there know, you go. I just couldn't go there. But yeah, I, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion in California. I think the train is headed that direction, but I I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure that we're going to see this be legalized in the next few years. Well, clearly one of the issues that that, fo- that group of people have to resolve are the law and order uh, issues and and Californians have had a long historical law and order bent when they go to the polls and that kind of transitioned us to topic two on the California Politics Podcast, which is the issues of law and order, crime and punishment, cr- victims. This was uh, Crime Victims Week in California. Uh, we saw two different groups of crime victims advocates and two different parts of that discussion in Sacramento this week. People who are more about law and order and people who are more about rehabilitation and redemption. And those are really fascinating narratives. There's a, there's a bit of a battle going on for um, how you shape this issue in the new way we talk in California. And it's, it's been a huge change. If you look at 20 years ago, you know, when, when uh, during the, the three strikes mania and mandatory sentencing and, you know, voters approved three strikes law in California, uh, you know, versus now with the, with realignment and Prop the 47. passage of Prop 47 and, and the, whole narr- and the whole narrative, I mean, this week in the New York Times, there was a front page story about the missing generation of black men and, and how the racial component to incarceration. And John Legend was in Sacramento this week and, you know, talking about this issue. And um, I just think, again, that's another one. We talked about gay marriage. We talked about pot. And I, and I think if there's a third issue where there's been a real political sea change in California, it's on the issue of on, basically on the war on drugs, you know, and, and sort of low-level, you know, victimless crime, as they, you know, as it's called. Uh, I think the narrative is, is completely different, and, and that policy is changing rapidly. In the and state. I just got to say, I, it, it, it's not by accident. On accident. My mom's going to kill me. Uh, are, you listening? are you listening? That's a shout-out. Yeah. The, this was a very concerted strategy by folks on the side who, who wanted to see more rehabilitation and some of it actually came out of people I think that worked in in law enforcement and and had this background and working for you know district attorney if you look at the people who who ran prop 47 you know they had George Gascon the DA of San Francisco but they also have people who used to work with the DA's office when Kamala Harris was there who are helping who are working at foundations and yep. nonprofits now and bankrolling this and I think that they really looked at you know the fact that crime victims united and these groups that were largely funded by law enforcement groups for years and had kind of run the tables around policies and they decided you know very thoughtfully to come at it and say hey wait you know this is not who speaks for all of us, and they worked very hard on, you know, getting data and 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 really and, and really trying to shift the narrative. And I, and I think it's been fascinating to watch. And um, it's certainly not a foregone conclusion. I think that we see every day in the Capitol a lot of attempts to to roll back some of this stuff. There's at least a dozen bills, you know, pending related to to chipping away at part to Prop 47 um, that advocates for 47 are against. And I think you know. We can talk about the policy on those, but it, it certainly, um, I think, reflects a national shift in the conversation that we've seen in other areas, you know, in Texas and in some southern states that have 
typically been very law and order, crime and punishment. Um, this idea also of framing it not just about victims, but about money. Are we spending too much money incarcerating people and not really getting safer? And that, well, and that's what sort of led to realignment and, you know, well, under federal court order. But we saw a new, uh, a new audit out this week from, uh, from the state auditor talking about the impact of Prop 47. And, and you know, uh, since the passage of Prop 47, the state estimates 5,500 inmates have been let out. Uh, you know, so um, it is having a dramatic impact. And then if you look at the you know, inmates that are being released, um, you know, capacity in, in, in local jails as, as certain crimes are reclassified and, and inmates are directed to local jails instead of state prisons. The sort of prison industrial complex that, that existed in the state through the 90s and saw the rise of the, of the prison guards as a powerful political union. Remember, they were the kingmakers for Gray Davis when yes, they endorsed Gray Davis over Dan Lundgren. That was a big deal. And that sort of, um, you know, I think that their power has eroded tremendously as, and so there have been some real sort of political impacts as, as the policy has shifted as well. Well, and I, and I want to go back to the crime victims part. This was Crime Victims Week. The, the, the politics of, of, uh, of crime victims and the groups that are now um, vying in some ways to see how that narrative is shaped, because that's kind of, you, you, you shorthanded a little bit, but just for people who didn't know, the John Legend appearance in Sacramento was part of a group of crime victims, an advocacy kind of effort that talks about rehabilitation and talks more about these kind of issues of redemption and change versus the historical Crime Victims United group, which has come at it much more of a law and order and has been seen much more on that kind of way. That, that that's either a battle or a shift for that kind of narrative in this. Well, and it's an interesting shift because I think, you know, uh, prop uh, the three strikes law was, was largely pushed and in part authored by the father of a girl who was, you know, the, the victim of a terrible murder. Mark Class? Mark Class. Uh, oh, no, no sorry, 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 no, Mike Reynolds. Mike Reynolds, although Polly Class and that whole situation really helped push that. If you look at Crime Victims United, who's been this very powerful group, you know, um, Slarno family also, you know, had a terrible thing happen to them. But I think what we're seeing is also this shift in, like, the racial politics. And, and you mentioned this in terms of, you know, framing this lost generation. But also I think that... A lot of times when we talk about the fact that brown and black men are, you know, are a large part of who's incarcerated in this nation, you know, that belies the fact that a lot of the communities they came from were also the victims of crimes. And and and, and so I think that what you're seeing in to some extent that shift, that those people are coming forward and saying, yes, maybe I was the victim, but I also lost a brother or a son, you know, to the system. And I, you know, to me, you don't necessarily speak for me. And I think that's been fascinating. I also think to Anthony's point on the politics of this, the the sort of uh, diffusing of the um, prison guards' power, correctional officers, w was in large part during Schwarzenegger's term, right? I mean, that yeah. he, you know, he had a big battle royale with them. Susan after Kennedy he, was no fan. No. And, and so even though I think on a lot of issues, actually, Schwarzenegger was more crime and punishment minded and he didn't have to deal to the same extent with the court orders on the prison population that Jerry Brown did he kind of set the stage for that and and, and the decline of both th that group in terms of their political power on issues broader than just their own you know issues and then also for crime victims united and some of those groups that had had benefited from their money I'm really fascinated by um, when you look at these crime and punishment issues because, I mean, I'm, I came to California in the early 90s, in 93, um, to go to school. And that was kind of the peak 
of this yeah. of this era because that was again that was three strikes that was Mike Reynolds effort that was Polly Class case that was all of those things, um, but I'm I'm really fascinated by how um, you know individ- you know horrific events can galvanize the public but at the same time. In some ways, some of the some of the downsides of the of the current things have not galvanized in that way. So let's talk about realignment for a moment. So there was a whole discussion that there were all these people being uh, not sent to prison that were going to go back in the communities and reoffend. There was the blood in the streets comment by State Senator Jim Nielsen, a Republican Repeated from Northern California. Streets, right. Yeah, I mean, but all of these things, and then there were isolated cases of people who would have been the Prop 109ers, as the as right. as the critics of the realignment thing talked about. None of that ever got traction. Uh, not at this point. No one, nothing ever got traction to change the policy in any dramatic way or galvanize people to more of a lock them up mentality. And then really quickly, on 47 so far, we have seen some things that have not quite worked out quite well. And um, some of the issues in terms of like how 47 is going to work and it's crafted by an initiative and you can't go back and necessarily fix it in certain ways. And I'm just fascinated that that individual events often galvanize the political world toward a certain thing, and yet they haven't had that strength uh, in recent years. There is a, to, to the point of you're saying that the narrative has changed somewhat about crime and punishment, I might otherwise say, no, it hasn't. We just haven't had a big event. But none of these particular things have derailed the willingness to keep moving on realignment, on right. something like 47 yeah, or I any mean, of I, that. I think the governor, you know... And it, some of this, I think, is the fact that we've had a lot of research and we have seen, you know, a dramatic drop just nationally in violent crime. I think there was a lot of sort of fear coming out of the 80s and in the early 90s. Um, so there's nothing to sustain it in some ways. Yeah. And I think that I think the narratives that have shifted partly on the, on the part of the media and the way we cover these things. And, to you know, there's a difference if you cast something as a as a, a singular horrific event or as part of a bigger narrative of you know people being unsafe in their own neighborhoods I think the research has gotten better around what works and what doesn't um, and I think that you had a governor you know everybody's always scared of the Willie Horton moment right that as as a politician the one person that you pardon or let out or the policy that does it you know comes back to haunt you forever and people also, kept predicting it with realignment and they did and, and the governor and and the attorney general to some extent were both pretty blunt about the fact that like bad things are going to happen. And just because they do doesn't mean that the entire state policy so you know should be sort of drafted around one one event. Um, I, I don't really have the answer to that. I mean, I would like to think that some of it is that, that the public has gotten a little bit more, um, at le- if nothing else, just thoughtful about how we approach things. And I do think that there are, there, there are laws and, and ways that or you know, just ways that we can frame this um, that that have shifted na- statewide and, and nationally, really, because we're spending so much money on it. So let's move to um, uh, our side dish, our little brief moment here where you get to kind of take a little sampling of something that's going on in the world of politics. I'm, I'm going to jump in and go first here. I'm going to let Anthony go last because I know what his is, and it's a good transition into uh, our third topic today on all things water. Um, but but uh, my side dish, and by the way, uh, you can find me on Twitter at John Myers, J-O-H-N-M-Y-E-R-S. Um, my my uh, side dish is the polling that came out this week on education issues, and more precisely for my side dish, uh, School Bond. Uh, Public Policy Institute of California's poll that came out on Wednesday night showed that the theoretical idea of a school bond on the statewide ballot in 2016 uh, is at 55% support. 
a little lower than historical norms of what people like for a ballot measure, but probably not a bad place at this juncture. The question was very uh, generic uh, because there is nothing completely to look at yet. It didn't ask how big of a measure, for instance, you would support. The measure that's out there, though, is a $9 billion measure. And the backers of that measure have given up on the legislature and the governor, primarily because the governor has pretty much said he's not interested in school bonds anymore on a statewide level. He wants to do something different. And so they're out collecting signatures. They've put together about $2.4 million, they tell me, to gather signatures, which will be plenty under the low threshold for signatures now. But... Um, we're going to have a discussion again about school construction and modernization, it looks like, on the 2016 ballot. And historically, Californians have voted for school bonds. And so you've got to think that even though 55% may be low in some way, the odds are pretty good. People still care about schools. They still think schools are underfunded. And they would jump back into that world. So, I mean, anybody, but not to spend too much time on a side dish, but is there any counter narrative to a school bond looks to be a pretty good bet if you're out in a 2016 universe? No, I think that's right. And it's sort of an indication of how the budget picture has changed where and we saw it with the water bond. Of course, the governor supported the water bond uh, last time, Prop, Prop 1. But, um, but how there's sort of been a, an easing of the fiscal crisis. I think that changes the politics dramatically heading into 2016. Okay, side dish, Marisa Lagos. Well, I'm going to just shamelessly plug my uh, Twitter handle, <laughs> M. Lagos. <laughs> my Twitter handle is, is M. Lagos. And um, I'm going to mention my story from this week, which ran Monday on the California Report, and it remains for posterity on the KQED website. Um, at kqed.org slash... Political muscle. I looked at uh, juice committees in Sacramento. How do you how do you how do you get political muscle up there? And um, what I found after a lot of data crunching was that most of the current chairs are not actually benefiting just from the the largesse of the industries they regulate, um, but are benefiting from their own fundraising abilities and their propensity to funnel money to the Democratic Party and to other Democrats. So. Essentially, that um, by being a team player, you can help yourself in Sacramento. And I think that this is, uh, in part, the result of, you know, term limits and, and the way that that has changed the power dynamic under the dome and, and, and in some ways elevated the power of the speaker. Um, well, we can, we can quibble on that. But, you know, that – so – yeah. But I was just going to say, and, and I, I'm very proud of Marisa's work, having worked on her with it, and, and the Political Muscle Project is something we're going to do more of in 2015. I've done one version, she's done one version, because there's a lot of different ways that people flex that muscle. But I did think that that was, that was the great finding out of this, which is the shift away from accumulating power for yourself to the way that, whether it's because of term limits or other changes, that you know, the job is now raising money for the party and raising money for your candidates and pushing that money out to those candidates. And that's not to say that never happened before, but that is clearly where these people excel at these powerful juice committees is they are big party backers. Money is the way you show your party loyalty. So, yes. yes. And now uh, uh, Anthony's uh, side dish, and I'm going to say Anthony's Twitter handle for him because I got my own reasons. Anthony York 49 is his Twitter handle. And Anthony Sidish, let me set the stage. Bum, ba, bum, 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 bum. Wow. Water. There's our music. The final frontier. <laughs> uh, Water is the final frontier, yes. Yes, uh, yes my, uh, well, on at uh, Anthony York 49, you can 
get the latest updates on William Shatner's Kickstarter campaign aimed at solving the California drought. Uh, Captain Kirk wants a pipeline from Seattle or someplace with water, I think is how we put it. Uh, <laughs> very specific, very to, specific. To somewhere bring somewhere water, north of Somewhere here. where there's lots of water to build a pipeline into California. Um, so, uh, you know, he wants to raise $30 billion on Kickstarter. I don't, do they take a cut of that? I don't know how Kickstarter works. That, um, do, they, do they go into the billions, well, I think, is the this? better question. <laughs> how about if he just has people bid like Priceline, whichever one is the winner, they can, yeah. I mean, you know, he can really he get can some really. synergy from his um, endeavors in the commercial you world. Know, Clearly yeah. a well thought out. Yeah, hey, I'm, I just want, for the record, I'm in. I'm in. So uh, anyway, I can help. Uh, just DM me, Bill, at <laughs> AnthonyYork49, and uh, we'll, we'll build some pipe. Look, we'll... we'll <laughs> <laughs> Not less. <laughs> I am just going to move forward. Let's go to topic three. That's another Speaking podcast, as we say. Speaking of water, that's the transition. So two things happened on the waterfront. We really actually are going to need some kind of great like sound you, effect music. You said waterfront. Waterfront. And there's the waterfront. Thank you. For the audience listening, they can see that beautiful waterfront, surely, uh, in their mind. Two things on the waterfront this week we should talk about. And again, we'll talk about water a lot on this podcast. There's no way to get around it in this drought universe. So the state board, uh, state water board's regulations last weekend, uh, changing the tiers of new conservation levels, which I just want to mention in a moment because I think it's really interesting how those are going to play out in some of these communities in California. And then, um, then we had the court case and the closely watched ruling uh, in an appeals court this week that said that the tiered rate system, the tiered water pay, uh, uh, fee structure in San Juan Capistrano is illegal under California's Prop 218. Um, and so again, another series of, of things that, that ratchet up the pressure in some ways on, on what's the next political strategy, how is this carried out in local communities, and how do you carry it out if one structure, and I wanna say one structure, uh, is deemed illegal. Yeah, I mean, I think that's gonna have huge reverberations, and I and, and it is on appeal, so it's this isn't the final world right word, right? But I mean, that is the way that a lot of water districts have sort of been pushing conservation is to say the more you use, the more we charge you. Um, yeah, I think that's going to be a huge hurdle. And then we're also seeing, you know, all these individual comments back from the districts and boards around the state and agencies to the state water board uh, quibbling with the way that they have, you know, chosen to spread around the pain in terms of mandatory cuts. And, um, I mean, it's it's just fascinating to me because on the one hand, most of these agencies are like, you know, we're in a drought. We need to conserve. And then they come back and say, but the way – but we shouldn't be the ones. It, the way you're assessing it in our community is just unfair. Um, and I think it just – it points to just how politically difficult this is both for the state to handle anything to do with water rights and issues but also on the local level that I think there's a lot of fear on these – from the local officials that, you know – yeah, and we, we saw this, you know, there's sort of a parallel bringing it full circle to, to realignment. I mean, there's a, a question of where subsidiarity ends and passing the buck begins. And I think some of the locals are, are bristling at, at the governor's, uh, at the administration's statewide plans and, and sort of leaving it to the locals. Like, here's this hot potato. You guys handle it. At the same time, this court ruling definitely complicates things. The governor called it a straitjacket um, in terms of giving locals the ability to 
to enforce regulations or to or to coerce their users in, into conserving water. And uh, you know, it's. Uh, but you know, the governor. Remember when he was pushing realignment, and after realignment went through, the governor remember at every stop he went around the state and he met with local sheriffs and he met with. It was like a you know school boards and sheriffs just to talk about local control funding formula and and uh, and realignment. And you wonder if something like that may be in the offing here if he's going to be going around the state meeting with local water boards. I mean, I think that diffused a lot of the political pressure. Um, and you wonder, I, I, I wonder what the governor's plans are, you know, this summer, if they may not involve uh, some, some water board stops well, for you I, all. I, I wouldn't be surprised, and especially when you talk to people um, inside the, the governor's administration, they think you're going to hear him talking about water a lot more, that this is going to be a thing. We're going to see him out there it's talking. It's a thing. It's definitely a yeah, thing. Yeah, because he has to go out there and sell it. I just want to say on the San Juan Capistrano part, though, for a moment, um, you know, Prop 218 uh, is, a, is, a, is an issue about how local governments um, basically get money from you. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, and you've heard from the groups that are longtime backers of 218, namely the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association mainly, that uh, 218 is not to blame or that, uh, you know, they're not to blame. The anti-tax move, it's not to blame for the problem of tiered water rates. For the that drought, it, yes. That it could have been structured differently by San Juan Capistrano. And so I, the, that's the reason I was putting the asterisk by this earlier is I do think it raises the question of what are the other ways that you can deal with these water limitations besides that kind of tiered rate structure. But back to the, the, the tiers that the State Water Board put out of, over last weekend, I mean, look at some of those communities. That's going to be a hard lift, and it's going to really – um, it's going to be fascinating to watch. Look at the Coachella Valley that uses lots of water, or golf courses. Look at Beverly Hills and the water usage. Look in uh, in our area in Sacramento and West Sacramento. Those are some high conservation rates coming down. We're in the lovely city by the bay where there is no real landscape to water, so you can conserve water easily, Marisa, the dogs all of your do, neighbors. The dogs do that here in San Francisco. <laughs> but these are, these are going to be some really... These are going to be some really tough it's things to deal with. It's, I got a dirty look. It's, well, no, it was, that wasn't about you. There's some San Francisco haters out there, so I'll just let that No, stand. I love San Francisco. I just understand the dog thing. Um, Just on Anthony's point, comparing it to realignment, I think that's a good point. I think the governor would love to go in that direction. I don't know if it's actually possible because, you know, when people talk about crime, you know, it doesn't stop at the county's edge. Like, well, water certainly doesn't stop at a county edge. and. I mean, I think that would be nice for him, but I don't. A, I don't think we've seen the 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 buy-in and sort of urgency at the local level over the past few years. And B, you know, um, there are just it's just so muddled, and there's so many overlaps, and you already see, you know, down south this huge fight between San Diego and the Metropolitan Water District. I just feel like there's going to be a need for you know an adult in the room so to speak and so i think i mean i I think it'll be fascinating to watch how the governor handles it but i don't know that he'll have the ability to really pass it off the way he did with realignment plus let's be clear i mean that got snuck through nobody like i don't think the legislature knew what they were voting on like (laughs) i think that like that because these are such hard issues right so i just i I'm not sure that they'll, they'll be able the state will be able to throw up its hands that way if they actually really want to make a difference. Well, I, I think I, I think there I think there are parallels and there are non-parallels for lack of a better term. I mean, I, I I think that I think that this governor is different than a lot of people. He can I don't think he fears going in and having people you know 
tell him to go pound sand or whatever. I mean, he's, you know, and, and, and he's certainly not going to do it on a photo op. I mean, to, to Anthony's point about realignment, we didn't know in the press when he was going to these places. And, and a lot I, that's, of times. Yeah, and, that's, and that was by design, quite frankly, in a lot of ways, because he doesn't want to have that kind of, that's not, he's not interested in that part of the photo op part. But I do think where it is different and the challenge here is that uh, the, the drought issue gets worse every single day and there's a measurement and everybody feels that realignment was a little harder to grasp you were waiting for another bad guy another story of another bad guy and the legislature uh, taming their interest in doing more faster is going to be hard for him the people who want to go revisit the groundwater deal from last year they want more efforts they want something else i mean this is a this is a harder um thing to wrestle with in some ways because it is so ever-present in your life. Every single day, moment, brown grass. Everybody doesn't go to jail. Everybody's not on probation. Everybody needs water. There you go. Everybody has this discussion at home. Our economy, you know, our quality of life. I just, I think, um, yeah, and and it is, again, like something that we have less power over. Like, we created the criminal justice system here, right? We didn't create the rivers and streams, so... Well, uh, in the meantime, up to a foot of snow in the forecast for peaks in the Sierras. So fingers crossed. If we just got 50 more feet. Then we're good. And if it just had come earlier and wouldn't melt away so quickly. Put your buckets out, everyone. <laughs> She's the optimist. I'm. I'm. That's the glass half. That's the glass half full philosophy. Literally. I'm clearly the glass half empty guy here. And uh, this is a lovely view. So we thank our, uh, our the folks who who let us speak at the municipal investors uh, conference. Um, We're experts. That they're they're the experts, and we just came to kind of make things up. But we are sitting here in their conference room. So thank you. Uh, that's Marisa Lagos from KQED, Anthony York from the Grizzly Bear Project, and I'm John Myers from KQED. As always, thanks a lot. We'll see you next time.